0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India, by Janardhan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, In Good Taste, The Aesthetics of Rasa. Horror movies are a rather puzzling form of entertainment. Lots of people don't enjoy them at all, and those who do enjoy them might be hard pressed to explain why. After all, in everyday life, you wouldn't thrill to the sight of innocent teenagers being chased by an axe wielding psychopath. Why then do horror movie fans like watching it happen on a screen? You might respond that they know it isn't real, but this only makes it more puzzling. Since the audience is aware that the danger is entirely fictional, Why should it provoke any emotional response in them at all? The same questions could be raised about other genres, such as the romantic comedy. We know that Jennifer Aniston and that handsome actor whose name escapes us at the moment aren't really falling in love, yet we are swept away by their flirtation and growing intimacy. How do fictional representations manage to solicit such emotions in us, like fear and romantic yearning, yet without generating exactly the same emotional responses we would have if we were really being pursued by an axe-wielding psychopath, or by Jennifer Aniston. These questions were central to ancient Indian writings devoted to aesthetics. The key text of this tradition is entitled Natya Shastra, or Treatise on Drama, and ascribed to an author named Bharata probably compiled in the early centuries AD, the Natya Shastra is a very lengthy work. If you listen to Kit Patrick's History of India podcast, you will already have heard him discuss it in his episode 3A. It offers detailed instructions on theatrical performance, covering everything from the construction of the theatre space to the gestures of the actors and the metrical features of the text they recite. Because dramatic performances involve poetry and also music, Bharata also has much to say about these arts. So later theorists on the aesthetics of literature and music draw from him. For music, there was another early work on music called the Datilam, roughly contemporaneous with the Nātya Shastra. Unlike the modern-day horror movie, ancient Indian dramas were not out to surprise you with their plot twists the audience would typically have been familiar with the plots of the stories they were going to see. While there was some variation from performance to performance, the real theatrical art lay in the effective and affecting presentation of those stories. The key idea in Bharata's explanation of the desired result is rasa, an aesthetic response elicited by the drama. Though the rasa is intimately associated with emotion, it is not just the same thing as an emotion. Rather, it derives from emotion. Originally, an emotion or feeling was felt by the poet who authored the piece. It is then represented by actors through good dramatic technique. Thus, erotic love, for instance, is conveyed by sidelong glances and gestures that the skilled actor must learn to master. The poet may play with a wide range of emotions, provoking some of them only in passing to create briefer aesthetic effects, but the most important are the eight so-called emotional dispositions around which a whole drama can be built, reactions we are apt to feel when stimulated in the right way. Bharata says that mere transitory emotional effects serve to heighten these eight emotions, like attendance surrounding a monarch. Corresponding to these dispositions are eight kinds of rasa the erotic, the comic, the pathetic, the furious, the heroic, the terrible, the odious, and the marvelous. Bharata compares these rasas to the overall taste of a mixed beverage, alluding to the basic meaning of rasa, which is the savor, or nutritive juice, in food. We encounter it with that meaning in ancient Indian medical works, in fact. To see how this may work, consider a successful horror movie like Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Bharata's analysis would be that all the aspects of the film, from the disturbing music to the smallest details of Anthony Perkins' uncanny performance as the hotel owner, are designed to evoke a continuous feeling of dread or fear in the viewer. Moments evoking disgust or surprise like the famous reveal of the hotel owner's mother, would only serve to build up that core feeling so as to achieve the rasa of the terrible, which is the goal of the entire piece. Hitchcock would have this in mind in his construction of even more innocuous scenes, not only in the more famous moments of violence in the film, even if these are indeed, in every sense of the word, well executed. Of course, ancient Indian dramas did not center on murderous hotel owners, Even when aiming to provoke the rasa of the terrible, they sought to impart moral instruction, and thus played a social function not usually associated with Hollywood horror films. It is a matter of consummate artistry to produce rasa. In light of the word's literal meaning, we might compare it to the skilled chef who uses just the right balance of ingredients to get the right overall savor for the dish. As the later aesthetician Kuntaka puts it, Only when its natural charm is imparted by the beauty coruscating with the innate artistry of the poet, and enlivened by the full complement of aesthetic elements, can even a fully proper rasa convey its deepest beauty to the reader, who is transported by the play of the fantastic, and whose heart then overflows with rasa the way a moonstone is liquefied by moonbeams. But even when the dramatic conception and acting are top-notch, the rasa will result only for an audience member who is equally proficient. Extending the analogy between rasa and the savor of food and drink, Bharata says that the skilled audience member is like the connoisseur, who has a fine appreciation of drama that is, so to speak, in the best possible taste. His commentators say that the goal of the audience is to achieve sympathy of the heart, with the actors on stage, so as fully to experience the emotion that can give rise to rasa. The commentators do not, however, agree as to whether this is the only legitimate goal of drama or of poetry more generally. Some authors suggest that rasa could be a mere bonus or ornament of a literary performance, for instance in a poem whose main purpose is flattery. The 9th century Kashmiri literary theorist Ananda Vardhana uses this idea to explain why a piece might evoke two rival emotions, for instance, sadness and erotic longing, which would seem to impede the production of a single overall Rasa. Only when a single Rasa predominates is it the ultimate aim of the poem as a whole. Others argue that Rasa can never be a mere ornament, and that all poetry worthy of the name must have Rasa as its main purpose and ultimate result. Attention is also given to the various factors that may impede the successful production of rasa. There is a long discussion of this in another aesthetician, a critic of Ananda Vardana, named Mahima Bhatta. He complains, for instance, about poets who use redundant expressions, giving the example, he who cuts the necks of his evil enemies with the extremely fierce blow of the front end of the drawn sharpened sword held in his hand. As Mahima Bhatta remarks, why not just say, he who cuts the necks of his enemies with a sword? Another potential flaw is the use of puns that don't quite work. The pun, or perhaps better, double meaning, was almost as important an element in Sanskrit literature as in this podcast series. This device, called ślēsa, could exploit ambiguous meanings of words or even of whole sentences, and might be used to reveal the complexity of a literary character so it wasn't a matter of getting cheap laughs like our play on the word executed just a moment ago. The idea of rasa appears not only in commentaries on the Natya Sastra and works on Indian poetics, but also in treatises on music. Of course, it's no secret that music can elicit an emotional response in listeners. The ancient music theorists don't discuss specific compositions, such as you could write down in sheet music, but focus instead on melody types called jatis, which were associated with certain moods and emotions. One early theorist, named Matanga, gives us a nice example of the way that ideas from literary theorists penetrated into discussions of music. He borrowed the poetic concept of suggestion, or dvani, the idea that an aesthetic performance could evoke or express something without alluding to it explicitly. And if you think about this, it makes a lot of sense. If you are trying to make the audience appreciate sadness, it is downright counterproductive to have a character say something like, I'm sad now. Or just think of how you may be taken out of the story of a movie if the director selects a song for the soundtrack whose lyrics too obviously refer to the desired emotional effect. The Indian literary aestheticians were aware of this, it was especially the aforementioned Ananda Vardana who developed the idea of suggestion to explain how rasa can be evoked by poetry. In so doing, he appropriated a term found in the grammatical tradition. The grammarian Bhatrihari had said that uttered sounds are divani and make manifest linguistic meaning. Taking inspiration from this idea, Ananda Vardana argues that dvani, or suggestion, is a special function performed by poetic language. The poet's art avoids explicit reference to the emotion he wants to produce, and instead implicitly suggests that emotion to the listener, thus eliciting the desired rasa. He gives the following example. Wander confidently, monk. The dog that frightened you has been killed by a lion. His point may be this. The literal meaning is that the frightening dog is gone. And this literal meaning still stands, even when we correctly see the point of the verse, which is that the monk should be more frightened than ever. Now it is a lion and not a dog that is on the loose. That is the suggestion or unstated meaning. Another example would be saying that a village is on the river Ganges, which while true, conveys its full significance only to someone who knows that this makes the village a holy place. For Ananda Vardana, suggestion is distinct from the function played by words when they have their straightforward meaning, and neither is it an example of metaphorical language. After all, he argues, poetic language can retain its normal meaning while evoking rasa, whereas the normal meaning has to be given up when we turn to metaphorical or other kinds of non-literal interpretation. His example is that, when we do say that a village is on the river Ganges, we don't imagine a floating village. Instead, we transfer the meaning of the word on and understand that the village is arrayed on the bank of the river rather than the river itself. By contrast, poetic suggestion leaves meaning straightforwardly intact. It is something additional that is conveyed by the language only implicitly, which, as Ananda Vardana says, shines above the parts of the poem like a woman's charm. It is crucial that the poet can express himself in this indirect way, since, as we just said, it would ruin the effect if the poet tried to convey rasa directly. Ananda Vardana adds that the meaning conveyed by the poem, at least for the skilled audience member, is one that was originally experienced by the poet. He recalls a story about a poet by the name of Valmiki, the supposed author of the great epic Ramayana. While bathing, he witnessed a hunter killing one of a pair of birds and heard the mate's plaintive cry. Valmiki himself cried out in a spontaneous verse which came from divine inspiration. This fits with older ideas about the poet as a kind of religious intermediary like the so-called seers who passed down the Vedas. It was thought that poets benefited from a special unbidden inspiration or illumination, and that they are distinguished from others who enjoy visions simply because the poets actually set down the visions in words. In an echo of such religious associations, Ananda Vardana explains that the poet may choose any primary meaning he likes in his quest to evoke rasa by means of suggestion. In the boundless world of literature, he says, the author is sole creator God, the whole universe, takes on whatever form he wills. The resulting poem becomes a means of conveying to the listener the rasa originally felt by the poet in his moment of inspiration to taste what he tasted, as it were. But there is more here than meets the eye. According to Ananda rasa is really an effect of language, like the meaning of the words. Thus, it is called an arta, or meaning. But for one of his most important commentators, the 10th century author Abhinavagupta, Vagupta, the rasa experienced and conveyed by the poet is an emotion that is universal in character. He would say that in the story of Valmiki, the dead bird and its mourning mate are simply the occasion that inspired the poet to experience the generalized feeling of sorrow. Likewise, the audience member who experiences rasa is not having the relevant emotion in its everyday sense. As we said before, You are not yourself in love with the characters in a romantic comedy, nor are you afraid for your own safety while watching Psycho. Though you experience feelings of romance and of fear, these feelings are not directed at any particular object. This may remind us of ideas about detachment and liberation we've seen elsewhere in Indian philosophy, and it seems to have reminded Abhinavagupta of the same thing. By this period, the eight canonical types of rasa found in Bharata have been joined by a ninth one, called tranquility. For Anandavartana, this is the rasa intended by no less a work than the Mahabharata. Like any good poem, it has as its sole aim and motif the production of an emotional response, rasa. Abhinavagupta links this rasa of tranquility to philosophical notions of liberation, writing, This enjoyment of rasa is like the bliss that comes from realizing one's identity with the highest brahman, for it consists of repose in the bliss which is the true nature of one's own self. What about the emotional involvement and experience of the performers who actually portray characters in a theatrical drama? This was a much-discussed issue in Indian aesthetics, and for good reason. Consider again Anthony Perkins in Psycho. We know that he is not really a murderer, only an actor playing one, yet we emotionally respond to his performance with fear and revulsion. How does Perkins provoke this response without actually having murder in his heart? Bharata already stated that the actor's role is somehow to express a particular psychological state, but without actually being in the very same state as the character being portrayed. Later commentators tried to understand the phenomenon in greater depth. One idea was that the actor simply imitates the character at the surface level, by means of gesture and so on, which invites the audience to make an inference about the intended emotion. The actor's sidelong glance signifies that he is in love, and we as skilled viewers can interpret it as such, even though we are aware that he is just acting. As one text rather nicely puts it, we as the audience think that the actor is the character, but not that the actor is really the character but this attempt to explain dramatic portrayal as a kind of imitation met with opposition. One complaint was that the inference being made would in fact be fallacious. Consider yet again the example of inferring from smoke that there is fire on the mountain. The inference is a bad one if it is not really smoke that we see, but something that merely looks like smoke, such as low-hanging mist. Likewise, if the sidelong glance is only an empty imitation of how a lover would look, It would be mistaken to infer that a feeling of love is present. Besides, the actor is not merely an empty vessel who is quite literally going through the motions, he has his own psychological states which must somehow be connected to the aesthetic effect. Some authors thus took the contrary approach and said that the actor identifies himself completely with the character being portrayed. Thus the emotion felt by the character would be recreated on stage but this idea, too, met with skepticism. How would the actor be able to continue performing while in the throes of the powerful emotions he is representing? In the 11th century, the aforementioned Mahima Bhatta made a rather convincing proposal that avoids such problems. Referring us back to Bharata's statement in the Natya Shastra that rasa is manifested because of the aesthetic features of a theatrical performance, he pointed out that such aesthetic features simply do not exist in everyday life. You see an actor on stage as a representation of the character and not as the character who is truly undergoing the events in the drama. As Mahima says, since aesthetic elements are fictitious, whereas cause and effect are real, the former pertaining to literature and the others to the world, the former differ from the latter in both their natures and their objects. When we see a terrorized victim in a horror movie, we do not make an erroneous inference from this fake representation to a real feeling of fear, like someone inferring real fire from fake smoke. Rather, we experience it as a properly aesthetic representation, and the inference we make is to a properly aesthetic emotion, which is precisely the savoring of rasa. We ourselves can infer something from this whole debate, that the ideas of the philosophical schools were not confined only to those schools. The wider intelligentsia of Indian society were aware of them, and found ways to apply them in new and surprising contexts. Much as the terminology and conceptual apparatus of the Sanskrit grammarians was appropriated by the philosophers, these literary thinkers and aestheticians appropriated philosophical terms and concepts. Discussion of rasa took its initial cue from Bharata and was sustained for an extraordinarily long time. We've followed the story for the better part of a millennium and could have gone further still. As that discussion developed, it became increasingly sophisticated in philosophical terms. The later authors continued to take the Natya Shastra as their touchstone text, but connected it to ideals of detachment and liberation and notions originally explored within philosophy of language. Whatever we make of their judgments concerning aesthetics, these literary scholars were right about one thing, the richness and fruitfulness of the theories put forth by the Vedic schools. But, as we've intimated many times, some other philosophers were not so impressed. These same schools were subjected to searching critiques by the Buddhists and the Jains, critiques that were philosophically rich and fruitful in their own right. So, join us next time as the curtain goes up on the last stage of this podcast series, in which we'll look at the so-called unorthodox traditions, here on the History of Philosophy in India.